who they are. If you see them on Sunday, we'll be calling them. You give them a hard time? All right. So, so what do you all do here for Easter? You have any special service or dinner? The church. Yeah. Do you do a special concert or no? Do you do a Good Friday service or no? Just the one Sunday on. Yeah. What's well, You probably get some visitors that show up. That's usually what happens. Yeah. I probably still get a few. It's coming up, right? It's, we're only about a month away. Yeah. Well, I think it's about that time to start. We can go ahead and start and maybe, yeah, thank you. Maybe a few more folks will trickle in. There's no new handout for tonight. So we're finishing up the handout from last week. Thank you. Tonight, the, the goal is just to look at Matthew chapter 23. So we're pretty caught up in the notes and we don't have a very large passage to look at, so we, we could take some questions tonight and go a little bit slower. But uh, if you have your Bibles, we'll be in Matthew 23. I'll open us in prayer, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Let's pray together. Father, I am thankful for uh, the sunshine outside. I'm thankful for the health that you've given us and the safety to be here. I'm grateful for the, the freedoms that we enjoy and the chance to read the scriptures in our own language and, and study it together. Uh, we're thankful for your son. Uh, we pray tonight as we study his words that uh, you would work in our hearts so that we would not uh, be like the hypocrites that this passage describes, but that we would be people who actually look into the word and then walk away and, and do it actually put it into practice through the power of the Spirit. And uh, we ask for this help in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're in Matthew 23. So remember, in chapter 21, Jesus came into uh, Jerusalem. That was the first of three acted out parables, or sign parables. Then he had three actual, the verbal kind of parables, where he told stories. Uh, one of the common themes of the stories was that the people of Israel had, had not repented, and that, you know, if you viewed them collectively as a whole, and that's really represented by their, their leaders, uh, their leaders' failure to recognize Jesus for who he truly was and embrace his message of, of repentance. And then that is just really driven home by Matthew, because then he has three in a row confrontations where the scholars of the day, the religious scholars of the day, show up and they try to trap him. 
But remember, he's wiser than Solomon. He doesn't fall into their traps, and he actually turns their questions back on him, on them. And then we get to chapter 23, and he's going to directly confront the scribes and the Pharisees. He's probably at this point teaching in the temple courts again, just like he has the whole week. So we're probably not supposed to imagine Jesus and a few Pharisees just talking one-on-one. I think Jesus is standing in front of the huge crowd of people that would have been gathered in the temple courts, and he's speaking loudly for all to hear. He's talking about the Pharisees, but he's talking about them in front of all the people. And then at a couple places in chapter 23, he directly makes references to his disciples. Some people think that 23 is actually the beginning of his last discourse. Remember, Matthew has five big discourses that form the backbone of his story. Some people think the last one actually starts with 23. I think it's probably better to say it starts with 24, but 23 definitely gets us ready for it. It definitely leads up to it because it's going to make it very clear uh, that these men are condemned. They're going to suffer drastic covenant curses, and there's going to be a period of time before the Messiah actually returns and is welcomed. And then that's going to be the subject of Matthew 24 and 25. All right. So picking up there at the bottom of page 82, after warning his disciples and the crowd about the error of the Pharisees and scribes, that's verses 1 through 13, that's the first section, Jesus then pronounces seven woes in verses 13 through 33. And uh, we'll just put those up there on the board. This is what we're kind of driving at. This is what the chapter is most known for. He's going to pronounce these woes, and after he gives each of the seven, he's going to give a reason for why he's saying this. There's actually an eighth one in some Bible versions. It's because there's one verse there, verse 14, that probably got brought in from one of the other Gospels. It's it's a fairly common thing that happens because we have three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that look very, very similar. It's very easy for a scribe to remember a verse from another gospel and then put it into some manuscripts. So seven is probably intentional. It's, you know, thought of as the perfect number, the complete number, and it looks again like there's there's a three going on here. There's uh, three pairs, all right? So the first and the second one have a common theme. The third and the fourth one have another theme, a third theme in the fifth and sixth. And then the seventh one is just kind of a a summary statement where Jesus condemns them because of their future murder of his prophets, the people that he's going to send. So the first two, what they have in common is that these scribes and Pharisees who Jesus is speaking of, they actually are keeping other people from entering the kingdom. So remember, the kingdom can be viewed in different aspects. So here I think he's thinking specifically of the citizens of the kingdom, the people of the kingdom. The Pharisees were very devout, Jesus says, in going long distances in order to get converts, you know, trying to get people to to side with them and take their viewpoint. But then Jesus says, when you do that, you're making them twice as much a child of hell as you. That's that's a pretty serious charge, right? The, The second one has to do with the fact that they tend to 
focus on minutiae or peripheral issues in the law or even their own oral traditions and ignore what Jesus calls the more important or the weightier matters. So remember in num the number 3, verse 16 in your Bible, that's where he talks about how they'll, they'll actually tithe spices. So they'd actually count out their spices and make sure a tenth of them went to God. So they're, in that sense, they're being very detailed. But on the other hand, they've forgotten things like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. The third pair there has to do with the fact that they're not on the inside what they appear to be on the outside. And this is going to be one of the refrains that Jesus keeps coming back to is that they're hypocrites. They put on airs. They make themselves look very pious. It's demonstrated in one sense by the fact that they were all into washing things ceremonially. Remember earlier in Matthew's Gospel where they were into washing hands, even though that wasn't actually something the law of Moses told them have to do. they had to do? All very concerned about exterior, exterior ritual cleansing, but not as concerned about their own interior heart, their own thoughts and their own loves, the things that they actually had affections towards. So he says there in verse 28, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Remember, he compares them to a whitewashed tomb. So a tomb that's got a fresh coat of paint that looks all nice and pretty on the outside, but inside is full of, of rotting bones. That's the metaphor that Jesus uses. And then finally, we'll, we'll spend more time on this one in a little bit, but uh, he says, you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. So they say, well, we, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we wouldn't have killed the prophets. We have some evidence that they went to great lengths to honor the burial places of certain prophets. Uh, remember in Acts chapter 2, uh, Peter will say that they still know where David's tomb is. So they had certain places in the country where they would go to show reverence towards righteous people who lived in the past, prophets who had actually been killed by their own people, and they say to themselves, well, if we'd lived back then, we would have treated them better. And Jesus is saying, no, by actually calling them your ancestors and admitting that you're part of the family, you're admitting that you're actually part of the problem. And you're all, you are going to not only kill me, right? He's the greatest of prophets, and they're already scheming to kill him. But he's going to send, he says, prophets, teachers, and sages. You will crucify them, you'll flog them, and you'll pursue them. All right? So that's kind of the big picture of where we're going in chapter 23. We talk just a little bit about a woe. So at the bottom of the page there, I've got a, a quote from Dale Turner in his commentary, David Turner in his commentary. So I thought this was helpful. You know, what is a woe? We, it's not something we normally do in our culture. We don't pronounce woes on people. He says, an oracle of woe, or so when a prophet pronounces woe, the prophet, has an his attitude is anger, tempered at times by grief and alarm at the horrible price Israel will pay for its sin. Prophets are angry because they're speaking for God against sin, but prophets are also stricken with grief because this anger is directed toward their own people. So several different things you have to keep in mind. First of all, they're, they're genuinely angry the prophets when they pronounce these woes because they know that what the person's doing is wrong. 
There's also, too, an element of grief, because even though they're angry with the person, there's still a sense of grief over the consequences of what that person's done. And then third, and I say this on the next page, you know, this isn't an example of anti-Semitism. Uh, some people have read that into the passage as if Matthew is being anti-Semitic. First of all, Matthew is, is Jewish himself. He's likely the author, and he's Jewish himself. And, and Jesus, is a, he's a fellow Israelite, right? So just like the Old Testament prophets, this is a fellow family member, so to speak, someone from their own nation who's calling them. I wonder if maybe a little bit of that woe, the, the sense that the prophets had, might be captured. Like if you were going down the highway and you saw a terrible one-car accident, even if you did know that that person had committed the accident because of his own failures or irresponsibilities, right? So there'd be a sense of anger that he had done it, being irresponsible and reckless. But at the same time, that anger would be mixed with sorrow, right? There would be a sense of, of sadness over the horrible consequences of that reckless behavior. Maybe that illustration captures a little bit. Of course, here the stakes are much higher. And the last thing that I might add to Turner's quote is we also have to keep in mind that Jesus is more than just a prophet. He's more than just a spokesman for God. When he pronounces woes, he's actually the one who's going to be the judge. He's going to be the one that carries them out. And uh, I think that also plays into it. All right? So just a few examples of some woe statements from the book of Isaiah. So Isaiah chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. They have brought disaster upon themselves. And then a couple of verses later, Woe to the wicked. Disaster is upon them. They will be paid back for what their hands have done. Chapter 5, verse 8, he talks about some of the social evils that are going on. People are hoarding houses and lands when other people need land. So he says, Woe to you who add house to house. And then in verse 19, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. So when Jesus pronounces these woes, he's in a long line of prophets who have said similar things. All right? Then going back then to the, the beginning of the chapter, we'll work our way through it. He's going to say here to these teachers of the law, these scribes and Pharisees, in verse 2, he says, You sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. All right? So he says about these men, so remember he, he's talking about them, but he's not talking directly to them. He's talking to the people in the crowd, that you have to actually obey what the Pharisees say. So there I think he's specific, specifically thinking about their, their role of teaching the law. Because he says they do sit in Moses' seat. So there is some evidence that there was actually there was seats. So this is actually from the synagogue in Chorazin. Remember that earlier in Matthew's Gospel, that was one of the cities in Galilee that Jesus pronounced a woe on because of its unbelief. They've actually excavated the synagogue, and we think that something like this would have been present in Jesus' day, a, a chair carved out of limestone at the front of the synagogue assembly so that the teacher could sit there 
and he could teach them the law of Moses. And basically, when he sat in that seat, he was acting as a representative of Moses. And so, of course, Jesus is going to say, if that's what they're doing, if they're teaching to you the law of Moses, then by all means, do what they do. I mean, do what they say, but don't do what they're doing in their actions. Basically, follow their words, but don't follow their examples because they don't, themselves don't practice what they preach. He says in verse 4 that they, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and they put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. So they're, they're perfectly happy to lay these huge burdens metaphorically on people. With like These are all the things you should be doing, but then they themselves weren't as concerned about putting them into practice. Okay? Well, what are some specific things then that Jesus is referring to? Uh, you know, seven times in this passage, he's going to refer to them as, as hypocrites. Well, the, one of the first things he points out here is he condemns them for making their phylacteries wide. And then number two, he says their tassels on their garments are long. So those are both things from their culture. So it's just some pictures of what this potentially looked like. So the picture on the left is actually someone from recent times with a phylactery. So this was an interpretation of the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 13, Deuteronomy 6, that said they were supposed to bind the Word of God to their bodies. It was probably supposed to be meant as a metaphor, like hold on to Scripture, and we would say internalize Scripture, memorize Scripture, meditate on Scripture. Um, it's talking about an internal thing, but some of them actually took it very woodenly, and they would actually tie pieces of Scripture to their bodies. So they would take Scripture on little tiny scrolls, put it into little leather pouches or boxes, and then tie it on either their arms or their or their foreheads, okay? And we have some evidence that these had gotten out of control because we have later Jewish writings where they're talking about the fact, hey, you shouldn't make these out of gold. You know, so don't be showy with these. Don't cover them in gold, just make them leather. But evidently in Jesus' day, the problem was that some of them decided, well, everyone's wearing phylacteries, I'll just wear a larger one. You, know, you have some scripture on your head, I'll have more scripture on my head, all right? So it drew even more attention to them. The tassels, again, is something from the Old Testament law, but this is actually something that was required. Remember, Jesus has tassels on his garment. Remember, two times in Matthew, it says that people touch the tassels in order to be healed. So first, it was the woman with the hemorrhaging blood, and then at Gennesaret, it was just a large crowd of people that were trying to come up and touch his tassels. So the tassels were supposed to be a distinctive feature of Israel as a people of God and remind them that they were supposed to keep the law. Uh, if you go back to those passages, they were supposed to make, they were supposed to be blue, if I remember correctly, blue and white thread braided together, one on each of their corners. And if I'm not mistaken, that's why the Israel's flag today is blue and white, right? It goes back to that tradition. But evidently, some people thought, well, everyone's wearing tassels, so I'm going to wear longer tassels. I'll make mine extra long to draw more attention to myself. Remember, the tassel was supposed to represent their commitment to keeping the law. 
And so it would just be like a big flashing neon sign that I'm a really big law keeper. You know, I keep the law even better than you do. He goes on, he talks about some of their other practices, right? They, they enjoy titles. They like to be called rabbi. But let me just read to you a little bit from verses 7 through 12. And when I read this, notice the family language again. So that's happened very often in Matthew, that we as the true followers of, of Christ, we're supposed to be his family, and that means we're fellow family members with each other. So we're not supposed to be jockeying for position, and we shouldn't be looking for titles of respect. Okay. So this is what Jesus says about the Pharisees. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. You hear that? And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted." And we know he's not saying that Christians can't be teachers, right? Otherwise, I'd be out of a job tonight, right? I just have to pack up and go home. That's not what he's saying. We know that because, you know, the Apostle Paul will talk about different spiritual gifts, different things that people have been equipped to do in the church. He'll talk about there being prophets and apostles, pastors and teachers. So he doesn't mean that people can't do these functions. He just says they shouldn't be doing them for the wrong reasons, so you can carry out the function, but not be trying to grab a special title for yourself or special recognition. You should always be thinking of yourself in every area of church service, no matter what we do in the church. That's a great privilege, isn't it? That we are building the temple of the living God. We're, we're being equipped, just like those, those men in the book of uh, Exodus, we're given a special equipping of the Spirit in order to build the tabernacle. You and I, if we're, we're regenerated, we've been given a special equipping by the Spirit to build this temple, the church. But when we do it, we should see ourselves as servants. All right? We're not doing it to get noticed. We're certainly not doing it to get fancy titles. And we're not doing it to elevate ourselves above others. Because Jesus says, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. All right? Any, I'll stop there before we get into the woes there in verse 13. Any, any questions so far? I was just reading about the castle of this number in, in my favorite reading, and um, it's like, when, when is the law, like, not the law anymore? Like, are the New Testament people supposed to have these castles, or is it just culture at that point? Right. Yeah, so the, the apostles, you know, they wrestle with that in the early church because there's, there's debate going on. And uh, you can go to the book of Galatians especially or the book of Colossians, and Paul makes it very clear that with the coming of Jesus that the law has reached its goal and so it's done. So it was for a specific people, Israelites, and it was for a specific time. It was from Mount Sinai to the coming of Jesus. And when Jesus came, he perfectly kept it, he completed its goal, and now there's no longer any need for it. Um, and so, 
you know, the big issues in the, the apostles' day were, you know, should, should Gentiles be circumcised? Should they eat kosher food? Should they follow the feasts? Should they keep the Sabbath? I mean, those were all the big issues. And the apostles said no to all of those. So that would lend, lend me to think then, then that would include the tassels. Like, if they're, if they're willing to say no to all those big issues, then that would include the smaller things like the tassels. Um, one way to think of it is that, you know, God has one universal law where things are always good or things are always right and wrong. But then as an expression of that law, he can give laws to specific people at specific times. So murder is always wrong, right? Murder is always wrong because it's an attack on uh, image bearers. It's an attack against God. Well, Canada has a law against murder, I'm assuming, I think, right? And Mexico probably has a law against murder. And the U.S. has the law against murder. But which one are we under? We're under U.S. law. We're in their jurisdiction because we live in this place and we're Americans. So I think that's one way to think about the law. So that's why some of the laws carry over to our day because they go back to that universal, timeless law. But some of the laws were just specific to jurisdictions, and that would be where I would put the tassels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so then I think that's right. And then the next question is, like, how do we decide which laws are continuing? Like, which ones does... Right. And I think the answer is either they're repeated in the New Testament or they go back to the opening chapters of Genesis. So, um, you know, there's some things that the New Testament doesn't directly address that the Old Testament does. Um, just to pick an awful example, bestiality, for example, something that the Old Testament directly addresses, the New Testament never talks about it. Well, does that mean that it's right today? Well, no, absolutely not. Well, what would you point to that says it's wrong? You'd go back to Genesis 1 and 2, the distinction between humans and animals, the ordination of marriage, um, those initial ground rules that were set up. So I think those are the two things that we should look to. God's, God's revealed will in the opening chapters of Genesis, that, which precede the law, and then also all the things that the apostles talk about in the New Testament. And, that, and I think that reveals to us God's moral will for all people at all times. So the ultimate expression of these, of these uh, leaders' hypocrisy is their willingness to reject Jesus and not just reject him, right? But, you know, by this time they're actually planning to kill them. So this is what Jesus says to them. If you go to verse 34, um, I'll just back up a little bit so we get a little sense of the family language that he's using. Uh, I'll go back to verse 29. So he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets, and you decorate the graves of the righteous. So that's probably people like David that we talked about. And you say, If we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them 
in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. So Jesus isn't condoning what they're doing, but there's a, that's an ironic statement. He's like, fine, just, just go ahead and be who you really are. Be who your ancestors were. And then look what he says to them. You snakes, you brood of vipers. So that's, that's basically the same thing. And they're, they're snakes and they're children of snakes. All right. It would be very easy if he said the children of the snake, we would know for sure that he's talking about Satan, right? But I think just the fact that he brings up snakes, anybody who's used to reading the Old Testament would think of the connection with the Garden of Eden, right? So there's been the snake, and then there's been a whole line of snakes since him, a whole line of family members who have followed him and done his will, all right? And then he says, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I'm sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come on this generation." And remember, that's the word that I've suggested before should probably be translated something like family or group of children. So he's basically saying there's one big family, there's one big group of children, and it's not just a current problem. It goes all the way from Abel's day. So Abel, remember, the first victim of murder. So that's, that's about as close to the beginning as you can get. And it extends all the way past Zechariah. And I have a footnote on the next page. We're not exactly sure who this Zechariah is. There's probably two good possibilities. He's either the prophet Zechariah, who has the book of the Bible named after him. That means he would have lived in about the 500s BC. Or he's a man that's talked about in the book of Chronicles, who died earlier during the days of the kings. Either way, he's been dead a long time, right? And he, he's... he's thousands of years removed from Abel. So we're talking about a huge family that's extended over time, and it's still present in Jesus' day. And Jesus is saying to these Pharisees and scribes, no matter what you look like on the outside, no matter what kind of airs you put on with people, you actually belong to that evil family. You're actually children of, of snakes, all right? The point there at the bottom of page 83 is this concept of, of corporate solidarity. So Jesus argues that the scribes and Pharisees are acknowledging corporate solidarity with their fathers, which implicates them also in their father's guilt. This solidarity is made clear in verse 35, where Jesus addresses these leaders as if they were their ancestors. Did you pick up on that, or have you thought about that before? He said, you murdered Zechariah. So whoever Zechariah is, he's either the prophet from the 500s, or he's the prophet from earlier in the days of the kings. Either way, he's been dead for at least 500 years. So how did they murder him, right? How can Jesus say to these people, you murdered him? He can say this because of this concept of corporate solidarity. 
that if one member of a family does something, that the whole family is considered responsible. It's a strange concept to our Western ears, right? Because we're very individualistic, right? But in their day, it would have been a common concept. And it's actually, in some sense, a biblical concept, right? Not only, I mean, it's clearly a biblical concept because Jesus is teaching it here, but it goes back even to what the Apostle Paul says about Adam, right? Adam was the first of our family, right? He was our head. He was our first king, so to speak, our representative. And when he sinned, it says in Romans 5, we all sinned. We were all guilty. We're all held accountable for what he has done. Or another example that I have there in the notes would be from Joshua chapter 7, you know, Achan. Remember Achan? He sinned after the destruction of Jericho and he hid stuff. And then when he's finally brought to account, his family is held accountable with him, right? The family together. And as soon as we start thinking, well, that doesn't sound really fair, why are whole families being held accountable for the actions of one? Just remember that because God has set things up that way, that allows him to create a new family where all of us are held or credited for the righteousness of one family member, right? So all of us are considered sinners because of Adam's sin, but all of us can also be considered righteous because of Jesus' righteousness. Again, this idea of just two big families that all of humanity belongs in. And lots of the people who think they're over here in God's family, Jesus is saying, no, you're actually over here in this evil family, and this evil family is guilty of innocent blood. You've been killing people all the way back to Abel. You killed people through Zechariah's day, and you're still killing people now. They're going to kill him, right? And when he eventually starts sending apostles and other representatives in his name, this same evil family will keep attacking them. So how, how do I know for sure that this word generation should be translated family? And how do I know for sure that Jesus is speaking more broadly than just this one group of people? Well, there's some other family terms. So under point five there, letter A, I say that the Pharisees and their followers are called children of hell. Did you pick up on that? So not only are they headed to hell, but by their teaching, they're making other people children of hell. B, he calls them a brood of vipers. So we talked about that one. And then on the other side, point C, Jesus is going to refer to them as the, peop the children of Jerusalem. So the people of Jerusalem are going to be referred to as children who Jesus is trying to gather. So let me just read a little bit from Two Saints commentary, the one that some of you have been following along in. It says, in these verses, Jerusalem is looked upon as a representative of the nation of Israel in its attitude and actions towards God. The repetition of Jerusalem and this expression of sorrow indicates that the Lord's great love for Israel and reminds one of David's cry at the death of Absalom. So Jerusalem, its children, its people... They have a sin problem, and it's going to be demonstrated by their desire to, to crucify Jesus in just a couple days. But Jerusalem, I think Toussaint is right, 
is just representative of Israel's problem. So they're just a sample out of Israel's problem. Israel has a sin problem. They all belong to one evil family. But then I'd go a step further, right, just to not have us take ourselves off the hook, that Israel's problem is just representative of a human problem. There's, there's ultimately one big, large human family that's evil that goes back to Adam that is tainted, contaminated by sin and needs to be saved, right? So when we, when we read what Jesus says about his fellow Israelites, when we read what Jesus says about those Pharisees and scribes, you shouldn't just feel like you're looking at somebody else's mail. You know, this actually has implications for us, right? We have to listen carefully to what Jesus is saying and ask ourselves, are, are we living as hypocrites, right? We know that when we came to Christ, a significant change happened in our life. We were born again, but as Paul says in Romans chapter 7, there's still a residual hold that sin has over us. We still aren't yet what we will be. We're still putting to death the deeds of the flesh. So you can't help but read what Jesus says here in those woe statements to the Pharisees and think that there's not areas where all of us can improve as well, right? That we have to make sure that we are practicing what we preach, that we're not just worried about what we look like on the outside. We're not about elevating ourselves over others but we're actually trying to, through the means of grace that God has given us, to transform our inward person to be more like Christ. So Jesus says here about the people of Jerusalem, these children of Jerusalem, you know, notice again the family language, in verse 37, that he would have gathered them. He would have gathered them and protected them, but they were not willing so verse, I'll read the, the last couple of verses of the chapter. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. So I would take that to mean you were not willing to repent. That's his point. Like, I would have gathered you, I would have protected you, but you weren't willing. You didn't turn back to me. You didn't heed my call towards repentance. And so this is then their indictment. He says, look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So I think there, as I say in point six, that when he starts talking about a, a, a hen a bird that would gather her chicks and protect under wings. Those all go back to pretty familiar language in the Old Testament about gathering and protection. So first, let's look at some of the, the gathering passages. So these are passages in the, both the Psalms and the Prophets, where the people of Israel look forward to a day when they're going to be gathered. So the psalmist says, Save us, Lord our God. And gather us from the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Isaiah 27, he compares the gathering to the Exodus. He says, In that day the Lord will thresh from the flowing Euphrates to the wadi of Egypt, and you, Israel, will be gathered up one by one. And then Jeremiah 31, that's in that basic 
general context of the passage that Matthew quoted all the way back in chapter 2 about Rachel weeping for her children. Remember the promises that someday the children will come back, they'll return. See, God says, I will bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. So there's all these references in the prophets about the people of Israel being gathered back to the new place that God would make for them. But it was always conditioned on their repentance. And Jesus is saying, because you failed to repent, your house is going to be left desolate. So I think, and I'm going to say here in just a little bit, I think the house is the temple. So their temple is actually going to be destroyed, the worship abandoned, and that's the ultimate expression of God's displeasure with the people. And you know, a lot of them probably would have put a false confidence, just like they did in Jeremiah's day, in the fact that they possessed the temple. And so possessing the temple would have made them safe. You know, surely God wouldn't let anything bad happen to his temple. You know, surely he'd rescue us like he did when the Assyrians attacked in the days of uh, Isaiah. But no, it's actually going to be like the days of Nebuchadnezzar, right? When the Babylonians came, the Romans will eventually come and they will destroy the temple. This imagery of the, the hen, I think, is from Deuteronomy 32, which if you're thinking about some of the connections that we've made earlier, this is the same passage where Jesus gets his generation statements from. So the reason why Jesus keeps referring to this family of Israel with that word that we translate generation is because it came from this famous song of Moses. And one of the things that that song says is that uh, God acted for them at the time of the Exodus like a mother hen protecting her chicks. So it says, in a desert land, he found him. So that's God finding Jacob. So the people of Israel are being referred to as if they were one, Jacob. In a barren and howling waste, he shielded him and he cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft, the Lord alone led him. No foreign god was with him. So that's the kind of tender care that God showed or demonstrated towards Israel at the time of the Exodus. It's the same kind of loving care that he will show for them at Jesus' second coming when he comes and rescues them and gathers them. But in the meantime, they won't see that type of care because of their rejection of, of Jesus. Right? So I say there at the very bottom of page 84, However, during Jesus' earthly ministry, the nation will not yet receive the promised regathering because they, view, they viewed as a whole, were unwilling to accept Jesus. Instead of receiving the promised new exodus immediately, the nation would go through more exile. But, we'll skip down to verse uh, point 8 there. However, there is hope. So if you look down at your Bibles at verse 39, there's that little word, until. There, that's an important word, right? There is an until aspect. Your house will be desolate. You will not see me again until you say, okay? Until you say. That until sets up a condition. And we've seen this type of construction before. So remember back in chapter 5, verse 26, 
uh, we had that statement of Jesus. He says, truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. That was talking about a man who goes into debtor's prison. So there's an action. There's a thing that the guy really wants to take place. He wants to get out of jail. But that action, him getting sprung from jail, isn't going to take place until that condition is met. And the condition is the penny has to get paid. Well, Jesus uses that same construction. Remember we saw in chapter 10, verse 23, he said, Truly I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel until the Son of Man comes. So there's an, there's an action uh, going to the people of Israel, a mission to Israelites. It won't be finished. It won't be completed until the conditions met. The condition until the Son of Man, it has the same function as the penny in the other saying. When the Son of Man comes, the people of Israel will repent. The mission to Israel will be done. Well, the same kind of construction now in our verse. Jesus says, I say to you, you will not see me again. So there's the, there's the thing you're waiting for, the action that you want to be true. The people of Israel want to see Jesus. They want to see their Messiah. But he says, it won't be until this condition's met. And for the condition, he actually quotes from the psalm, Psalm 118. It's when they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So, I say there in the middle of that paragraph 8, so to put it another way, the future restoration of Israel is contingent on the nation's heartfelt welcome of its king. They need to repent. If you remember, the crowds quoted Psalm 118 with its message when Jesus entered Jerusalem. Jesus holds out the possibility that the nation that killed the prophets would still greet him with the same exaltation one day. Just think what a dramatic shift that will be. They go from being a brood of vipers, a nation that's killed prophets, to being people who see Jesus coming and they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What, what could cause that kind of change, right? It's a work of the Spirit, right? So if we were in Zechariah right now, we could go to the passages where it says that at Jesus' second coming, God will pour out his Spirit on the people of Israel. He will change their hearts so that they do repent. And since they have repented then, then the promise can come true that he will gather them from the four corners of the earth. They'll bring them to a new place where they will be safe and under his good rule. And when they receive their promised kingdom, Romans says, Paul says that that will be like life from the dead for the rest of the world. That all of us, all of us as Gentiles who have followed Christ, will join with them in that great kingdom that will last forever. So, let's to close that up. Let's look at point nine. So I say whether or not chapter 23 should be considered part of the Olivet Discourse, which we'll start talking about next week, it at least sets up the disciples' question in 24.1. Remember the big question they're going to ask is, when is this going to happen? <laughs> when are you coming back, Jesus? And what will be the signs? That's essentially. They, they're starting to pick up on the fact that it's not going to happen right away. They're probably not thinking 2,000 years at least. They're probably not thinking Jesus going to heaven and then coming back. But they know that something dramatic has to take place 
in order for this problem that Jesus has been talking about in, in Matthew 23 to be resolved. And so they start asking a when question and a what will be the sign question. And so we're getting, we're getting ready for that. It's widely recognized that Jesus' prophecy regarding the temple desolation could be based on several different Old Testament passages. So when Jesus tells them that their temple is going to be desolate, that shouldn't be shocking to them. They should realize that the Old Testament already predicted that this was going to take place. However, those same passages that said there would be a destruction, they also were in the context of restoration. And we've seen, as we go through this class, the back and forth, right? God promising that he would hold them accountable because of their unfaithfulness to the covenant, but then also saying that he would act to save them. They can't repent on their own. They can't change their own hearts, right? So he's going to act to change them. He's going to actually restore and bring them back. Um, so I, I give you some of the background on just one passage in Micah where it talks about the temple being destroyed, Jerusalem being left as a heap of rubble, the temple hill overgrown with thickets, you know, all of these different things that Micah 3 talks about. But then Micah immediately follows this with a promise to gather the exiles. So here's another gathering passage. He says, The nations will stream to Israel, where the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. Many passages we go to, just one that was in my mind just as I was driving here, here tonight, because I knew we were going to talk about those tassels, and we we're going to see the picture of the tassels. But you can look this up in, in Zechariah's prophecy. He says that someday there will be Gentiles grabbing on to the tassels of Jewish people so that they can be taken to meet their God, their king, right? I don't know if that will truly happen or if that's a metaphor, right? But it captures the point, right? The, the rescue of the Jewish people, their restoration, that's not us just reading somebody else's mail. That actually has implications for us because when they're restored, we are restored with them because both of us together serve the same king who loved us and died for us. Any, any final questions there or things I can clarify on that chapter? Yes. Right. Well, there's actually passages that, that kind of say both, right? Some passages where families are held accountable, at least on a horizontal, like now level, like Achan. But then there's other passages where, where God is talking about the future. That's the ones that you're quoting, where he says that, hey, you're not going to be able to use your parents as an excuse, that each one of you are going to be personally accountable before God for your own actions. But just think about it, even going back to Achan's family, right? You know, we might say, well, that seems very odd to us. Achan is the one who stole those treasures or the, that stuff, remember, and then he hid it. So why does, why, do we, why does his family suffer? But one of the things that we always probably should remind ourselves with that helps in those tricky situations is that those people aren't innocent. 
there's only been one person ever who was innocent and suffered. That was Jesus. The rest of us, when we suffer, we have done something wrong, right? Uh, it doesn't have to be like a mechanical one-for-one one thing, but we still are. And I don't think that when we suffer, it's like God's making up for the other times we got away. Like that, my dad used to do that. You know, we'd get in trouble and we'd say, well, we didn't do it. And he'd say, well, you probably did something else I just don't know about. You know, I don't think God operates that way. God doesn't operate that way. But there's a sense where we're all sinners, right? So the reason why there's pain and suffering and illness in the world, I mean, one way to answer that, ultimately, it's, it's our fault, right? It, it's our fault because we're sinners. And so even in those situations of, of corporate solidarity like Aiken or the passages you're referring to, those people still were sinners. Um, I think Adam is the hardest one, right? Like, I, I don't know about you, but if you're ever sharing the gospel with an unbeliever who's you know, knowledgeable about the scriptures, or maybe you're doing a Bible study with them, and you try to explain to them what the Bible says about Adam in Romans 5, that's, that's a tough one, right? It doesn't make sense to their minds. But there's a lot of things about scripture that don't really make sense to us, right? We just believe that that's what the Bible says. But I usually, in those situations, just keep pointing them back to, but that also makes it so that God can do the flip side with Christ, that he can create a new family with a new head, a new king who's righteous, and then all of us who are connected to him and part of his family are considered to have done what he did, right? We're considered righteous, which is the only way that you and I were ever going to receive the righteousness that's necessary uh, to enter Jesus' kingdom? It's a good question. Any follow-up? or uh, yeah. Any other questions? So when we come back, we'll look at Matthew chapter 24. We'll spend two weeks, I think, on the Olivet Discourse because there's a lot there. That'll be the last discourse in Matthew. And then after his fifth discourse, he'll go to uh, Christ's uh, arrest, betrayal, his crucifixion, and then his resurrection, which in God's providence will be pretty close to when we're celebrating it on our calendar, right, here at the church. All right, All right well, thanks for being a part of this tonight. I'll let you go out a few minutes early.